Bibi is back and he's brought with him some of the apartheid state's ugliest characters. Ghouls and geezers. Really a Halloween special. You guys have a scream mask? We have Ben Giver. Even according to Israeli standards, is highly offensive, problematic, and a criminal. Defended terrorists in court. He threatened the late assassinated Prime Minister Rabin. Convicted eight times in Israel for incitement. Or as he's known over there, an activist. (laughs) Apartheid's not enough. Full-scale genocide from the river to the sea. He almost killed himself because river to the sea came out of his mouth. (laughs) Kahanis literally stole Nazi principles, word for word verbatim. Can you believe those guys stole something? American Jews are too safe and coddled to understand Israeli Jewish fears. And it's worth unpacking how much it conflicts with the promise that a Jewish state will be the only place Jewish people can ever be safe. They're like, if you haven't committed a war crime, does your opinion even matter? Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Laura E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you just elected somebody prime minister whose idea of going door to door involves a gun. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional one to two podcasts per week, including our latest podcast, The Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. A lot of news this week, Michael. Quite a bit. More than I'd like. It's been a busy week in the apartheid state. So for those of you that missed it, Bibi's back. Don't call it a comeback. He's been here for years. Last time I heard from him, he was in the hospital with a book. (laughs) He's still under investigation for corruption, and he managed to become elected prime minister again. You think that that would hurt him? They love that. They love corruption. Yeah. That's like an endorsement. Some people want to get endorsed by Obama. Some people try and get investigated for corruption. Exactly. It is brownie points in the apartheid state. Now, this time, Bibi is back and he's brought with him some of the apartheid state's ugliest characters. Ghouls and geezers. Truly a Halloween special. Yeah. Very scary. Very scary stuff. They were like, you guys have a scream mask. We have Ben Giver. He's the gift that keeps on Ben giving. And the gift is murder. Murder's in the building and the building is Knesset. Just want to hear a spooky story? BB is the prime minister again. For the longest time, people were like, oh, well, you know, we just can't make progress because of BB. And then they got rid of him for a little bit. Still murdery as fuck. 
And they're like, time to bring him back. He actually wasn't the problem. He was maybe symptomatic of a larger problem, which is that this whole thing is built on a lie and ethnic cleansing. That is representative of a large part of the population, actually, who fully endorses that because the options were direct murder and murder. What were we choosing between? The, it was like a machine gun or a handgun? A vote for a bulldozer or a tank? Which one do you like? Exactly. And my heart goes out to the Palestinians inside 48. They're being intimidated at the polls. They're being beaten. They are genuinely, even if they get to the polls after all of the peril and danger that comes with voting in those so-called elections, what are they voting for? They have no real options. They have nobody who could represent their interests in any real way. I understand the joint list exists. Yeah, we just got to look at the numbers, right? So the Likud party won 32 seats. The outgoing prime minister Lapid's party won 24 seats and was followed directly by the far-right religious Zionism party headed by Kahanis lawmaker Ben Giver, who we've talked about quite a bunch. He's the absolute psychopath of all psychopaths you guys are nazis like legit fascist nazis yes, actually literally and there is an interview that just came out in the electronic intifada tony greenstein a veteran of palestine solidarity movement in the uk did a interview with electronic intifada about his new book zionism during the holocaust the weaponization of memory in the service of state and nation he talks about how zionists collaborated with Nazis, and that is consistent with what we're seeing today from Judeo-Nazis that were predicted by Shaiwa Leibowitz, talked about Judeo-Nazis. It was early on. It was a prediction of what would come from the society that they were inhabiting and occupying. This is a quote from Greenstein's interview, quote, Israel has no hesitation in cooperating with neo-Nazi regimes and movements. Is it any wonder we have a Jewish Nazi party, which is said to become the third largest in Knesset, reference to the religious Zionism party, which looks set to win a ministerial seat in the next government. If you establish an ethno-nationalist state, what you do accords with the logic of what the Nazis did as well. That's the fate of ethno-nationalist states, which is why neo-Nazis today love Israel. As a American far-right figure, Richard Spencer says, I'm a white Zionist. And then I actually most recently downloaded a book called The Secret Contacts, Zionism and Nazi Germany, written by Klaus Polkin, published by the Journal of Palestine Studies and the University of California Press on behalf of the Institute for Palestine Studies. The spring of 1933 also witnessed the beginning of a period of private cooperation between Zionism and the German fascist regime to increase the inflow of German Jewish immigrants to and capital to Palestine. The Zionist authorities succeeded in keeping this cooperation a secret for a long period, and only since the beginning of the 1960s have criticisms of it been expressed here and there. The Zionist reaction has usually consisted of declarations that their one-time contacts with Nazi Germany were undertaken solely to save the lives of Jews, but the contacts were all more remarkable because they took place at a time when many Jews and Jewish organizations demanded a boycott of Nazi Germany. On the occasion of the 16th convention of the Israeli Communist Party, a paper was submitted at the outset of the conference in which it stated that, 
quote, after Hitler's taking power in Germany, when all anti-fascist forces in the world and the great majority of the Jewish organizations proclaimed a boycott against Nazi Germany, contacts and collaboration existed between Zionist leaders and the Hitlerite government. The paper quoted the Zionist official Eliezer Livne, who had been editor of the Haganah organ during the Second World War, as declaring during a symposium organized by the Israeli newspaper Ma'ariv in 1966 that, quote, for the Zionist leadership, the rescue of Jews was not an aim in itself, but only a means, end quote, to establishing a Jewish state in Palestine. And the reason that people don't really know about this is because a lot of the documents remained locked under key and vault in the Israeli National Archives. As you know, and as we've talked about many times, people have been prosecuted for even referencing articles that have been declassified from the archives. And so that stuff that they have put out in the public domain, and they'll still take you to court for it, these documents are likely the thing that will never get declassified has been lost, you know, through like an admin error of some sort. And it's like, they just probably burned them or, you know, whatever. Saved something earlier, which was a thread I saw on Twitter showing how the Kahanis actually literally stole Nazi principles word for word verbatim and just deleted Jew and changed the wording and use that as their platform. Can you believe those guys stole something? Not like them. In 1986, a member of the Likud party took the infamous Nuremberg laws and showed how Kahana, basically Ben Giver's party, plagiarized his legislation proposals from the Nazis. And so one example of this, one of the Kahana's legislation proposals was, beaches will be separated and different beaches of similar quality will be designated only for Arabs or only for Jews. A person of a different nationality who enters the wrong beach will be incarcerated for six months. Which is so interesting because Palestinians can't even go to the beach at all if they live in the wrong part of Palestine. So it's even worse than the scenario imagined by the Kahana's at the time. Another one of the legislation proposals of Kahana was the status of non-Jews. They shall have no national rights, take no part in the political institutions. They shall have no right to vote, be elected, or appointed to any role of influence or power. If they do not accept their duties as slaves, they'll be forcefully deported. Palestinians are being ethnically cleansed and deported from their land. And millions of Palestinians were unable to vote in this latest election, which is just par for the course, because that's always what happens, right? They don't vote in, and they don't have any say in the institutions and powers that control all aspects of their lives. This was yet another election of an apartheid government for a minority of people living in this land with millions of people totally excluded from the political process. They say, oh, Kahana, this is what he said, and it's so extreme. It's like, that is what is already happening anyway. You know how certain politicians in the United States will gerrymander districts so that they're more favorable, they represent a demographic majority that doesn't really exist? The occupation has managed to gerrymander an entire country. <laughs> the crazy thing with this story of BB back and and back with this extreme right coalition. It's kind of like their Trump moment, right? 
where they're like, no, 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 America's better than this. No, I swear we're fine. Uh, it's all about progressive values and all this stuff. And we respect human rights. And then Trump gets elected. And then you got Muslim ban. And then we're finally showing our true colors. This is actually who we are. So let's just, you know, own it, right? Let's just show the world who we are and stop making excuses and lies and and contradicting ourselves and saying we're one thing and, and, and being another. They're always saying, oh, Zionism is fine. It can be this sweet feeling. It can be just this personality trait in my Twitter bio. But it's like, how do you wrestle with that when you elected BB for the 85th time and you also have Ben Giver, who even according to Israeli standards is highly offensive, problematic, and a criminal? Just bear with me for one second. As a lawyer, yeah. he's defended Jewish terrorists in court. He threatened the late assassinated Israeli Prime Minister Rabin. He was convicted eight times in Israel for incitement and other related felonies. So this guy for the apartheid state is doing way too much apartheid. You see what or I mean? Or as he's known over there, an activist. <laughs> but no, because not even, right? Even according to them, he's outrageous and defies all standards. Also, BB back sounds like the worst porn search ever. <laughs> Just a reminder that Ben Giver represents the mentality that apartheid's not enough. We need full-scale genocide from the river to the sea. That's what they believe. And they believe that because they think that that is consistent with their Zionism. He almost killed himself because River to the Sea came out of his mouth. <laughs> Uncocked the gun. He was like, that was close. Meanwhile, Mike Pompeo tweeted, congratulations to my good friend Bibi for his strong performance in the election. Bibi and I work closely together to advance the U.S.-Israel relationship. Israel is fortunate that he's still serving. Yeah, well, he couldn't send him the pick he wanted to. <laughs> the Zionist Organization of America, which is one of those settler colonial groups, it's honoring Trump with. Literally, this is, it says, the best friend Israel ever had. An award that I think they literally made up for him. Great. Of, of the occupant. It's like, it sounds like a child thing. It's like, it's like yeah, we're going to give him the best thing ever for the, for the murder. You know what I mean? It's like, he did such a good job. The best friend Israel ever had. He's an anti-Semite, right? Well, of course. They love, they love anti-Semitism. Right? That's so consistent with Pompeo's tweet of like, my good friend. Pompeo once went to a winery in the settlements. So Manda Weiss published an article. Biden administration and Israel lobby in a panic following Netanyahu's far-right election sweep. And I don't exactly agree because I don't think anyone's in a panic at all. Because what I've seen coming out of the U.S. administration is that nobody gives a shit. I saw a video of Ned Price saying that, you know, the Israelis are going to elect who they're going to elect. And that's up to them to elect who they elect. That doesn't seem like anyone's in a panic to me. I don't think Ned Price has panic on his settings <laughs> at all. I don't think like, he's, I don't think he's programmed that way. They don't. There is no. I don't know. think he's happy. Like I certainly think every day he wakes up, he reads his reports, and he's like, "Son of a fucking bitch! Why the fuck did you do that?" You know what I mean? But then he goes out to the podium, and he's like. Whatever happens, happens. Que sera, sera. He's zen in the type of way where it's like he's been hypnotized. All right, let's just hear what he said for a second. Israel is a strategic partner. It's a fellow democracy owing to its democratic identity. Uh, this will be up to the people of Israel uh, to decide the configuration of 
uh, their next government, no matter the shape of the Israeli coalition and government, uh, our relationship uh, will be strong and enduring. Israel is a that is a very that is a very clear message. No matter the no shape matter the shape of the government, our relationship is unchanged. So basically, it doesn't matter if the far right has now won and they're in power. It doesn't matter if a bunch of Kahanis are at the head of the government. It doesn't matter if Ben Giver now is has achieved this high position in Israeli government. It doesn't matter. They can do whatever. He could be the next prime minister for all they care. It doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. Hey, the <laughs> shape of the government could be a swastika and Ed Price would still be on board, right? <laughs> Keeps it consistent. <laughs> I was reading a lot on Twitter of Jewish reactions and responses to uh, the outcome. One of the Zionists tweeted, why don't you make Aliyah and maybe your opinion on this matter would have any effect. Rabbi Goodman tweeted, exchange that often happens between American Jews and Zionists. And he says, some people say American Jews should care about Israel. Young American Jews say we care about democracy, LGBTQ rights, pluralism in Israel. And those same people will come back and say, American Jews should have no opinion on Israel because they don't live there. So it's this constant tension of, you should care about Israel. When you say the things that you care about, they're like, you have no right to talk about anything. How dare you? You should not talk about Israel at all. Isn't that a neat little trick that they have? And there's this other common thread, an exchange that occurs. This is an actual tweet. It's very nice of you to live comfortably in your American dream home while criticizing Israelis who are surrounded by enemies and fighting for their lives. That's so interesting. Well, you moved there three weeks ago, so you could easily leave. (laughs) You also have an American home. (laughs) Another Jewish person on Twitter replied to that tweet and says, you know, I get this refrain a lot that American Jews are too safe and coddled to understand Israeli Jewish fears. And it's worth unpacking how much it conflicts with the promise that a Jewish state will be the only place Jewish people can ever be safe. Because isn't that the promise? That's the whole thing that they keep telling everyone. That's where we have to go to be safe. But on the other hand, they will jump at the chance to say, "You, you, how dare you have an opinion about my life because I'm in danger all the time. Yeah, you're too safe over there. And me, I'm in danger in the place where Jews will be safe. Isn't that a neat trick? Isn't that a neat trick that they do? They're like, you have to come here and aim at a Palestinian woman yourself before you even understand what we go through they're like if you haven't committed a war crime does your opinion even matter journalist ben white tweeted something which i thought was really helpful which is yes it's true that people are making a big fuss about ben giver reaching this high position in israeli politics right now and they should because it's a really scary scary person who has literally been convicted by an Israeli court of incitement to racism and support for a terrorist group. He is a literal terrorist, according to the apartheid state itself. Yeah. And to get convicted by the apartheid court, that's like defending yourself successfully (laughs) in Saudi Arabian court. (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't happen very often, right? And his pals include people, Bezalel Smotrich, who is the religious Zionism bloc, along with the aggressively anti-queer Noam party. These are the people who he hangs out with. And this is obviously a problem for those so-called, you know, liberal Western governments. But we should also not forget that Ben Giver's not like an anomaly. He's not like this, like, you know, aberration or like derogation from all of Zionism or all of Israel. 
And this is where I found the a thread by journalist Ben White to be very helpful. He basically just posted some of the most horrific quotes by current Zionist leaders. And he says, did Ben Giver say this or did somebody else say it? And in each case, it was one of his peers who we think is a better alternative to him. It's just literal quotes from Mein Kampf. Think about Benny Gantz when he says that he's bombed Gaza back to the Stone Age. I mean, these are the people who actually are describing the murder of hundreds of children in Gaza, thousands of civilians, and and, and commenting on it and saying that we're bombing them back to the Stone Age. That's that's Benny Gantz. Or Netanyahu, who said very clearly, Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people and them alone. Forget about Palestinians, right? People like Miri Regev, who literally, quote unquote, said, I'm happy to be a fascist. I mean, what else do you need? I'm happy to be a fascist. Where's the ambiguity in that? Or Lapid, who says, what I want is not a new Middle East, but to be rid of the Arabs, to maintain Jewish majority in the land of Israel. Again, ethnic cleansing is the name of the game. It's the point. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what all of them are trying to do. It's not just, oh, Ben Giver's the really scary one, but all the others are okay. Yeah, he is a really scary one, but he's just a face of what everybody else in some moments manages to hide, right? It's that reveal. This is who you are at your core. And he's just showing it for the world to see. Maureen Murphy also tweeted um, one of the uh, journalists at Electronic Antifada, congratulations to the Kahanis who represent the true genocidal face of Israel that previous liberal governments conveniently masked. Fatima Bernawi has actually passed. Yeah. Afro-Palestinian, one of the first political prisoners taken for resisting by any means necessary. And we've talked about how Afro-Palestinians are often targeted because their ancestors made the long journey from Africa to Palestine in order to fight the Zionists. And then though their descendants bear the institutional racism of the apartheid state, which discriminates against them both for being black and for being Palestinian. So Fatima was born in Jerusalem in 1939. Her father was Nigerian and her mother is Palestinian. In 1948, like many other Palestinians, she was forced into a refugee camp, in her case near Amman with her mother, before they eventually returned to Jerusalem where her father remained. In 1960, they were living in the African quarter of Jerusalem. By the age of nine, she had smuggled herself into Jerusalem to reunite with her father. Her father was an active participant in the 1936 to 1939 revolution in Palestine and defended Palestine during the Nakba. She had many roles throughout the years. She worked as an UNRWA nurse in Qalqilia during the 1967 occupation. She saw firsthand the impacts of the Zionist onslaught on the West Bank in Palestine. She would later declare that she undertook armed struggle because, quote, you destroyed Qalqilia in a statement to the interrogators who held her. She was the first woman to plan an armed operation to defend Palestine. The attempted bombing of a cinema screening a film celebrating the occupation of 1967 in Jerusalem. Although the operation itself was foiled, one of the first contemporary Palestinian revolutionaries 
She was sentenced to 30 years in prison and was released in 1977 in a prisoner release agreement, which point she was exiled to Jordan and then Lebanon following uh, the exchange terms. Eventually, she returned to Gaza in 1994, where she lived with her husband, uh, a fellow liberated prisoner, Fauzia Nimr, who died last year. She and her husband have been, in recent years, living in Cairo, and she actually passed away in Cairo. It's a huge loss for the community. She was an integral part of the Palestinian struggle. I'm going to share some words of her contemporaries. Fellow freed prisoner Aisha Oda saluted Bernawi in a Facebook post. Goodbye, Fatima Bernawi, daughter of Jerusalem and great fighter, the first to seek freedom and dignity and refuse defeat. She became a beacon for us, guiding us to the path of struggle, Oda wrote. Al Bernawi was the first Palestinian woman prisoner of the contemporary post-1967 Palestinian revolution. She was always certain to cite fellow Palestinian women who had been jailed in the decades of the occupation prior, including many women detained, held in forced labor camps, and subjected to harsh violence by occupation soldiers during the Nakba, as well as notable Palestinians like Ikhlas Ali, jailed for teaching children revolutionary songs in Palestine, and Naifa Akila, a member of Al-Ard Group, one of the first Palestinian revolutionary organizations formed following the Nakba accused of sharing military information about Zionist forces with the Syrian army in 1956. Great article about her on samidun.net. Do you see also at the UN, there was a vote to end the 62-year U.S. blockade on Cuba? Guess who voted to end the blockade and guess who voted to keep the blockade going? I don't know. <laughs> Come on, guess. Guatemala? I will have you know, Michael, that 185 countries voted to end the blockade. And guess who opposed? It was good old apartheid Israel and its best friend, the US of A. No, its best friend is Donald Trump. <laughs> Only. <laughs> Can you imagine? How much more proof do you need before you start to reckon with the fact that to the rest of the world, you are the bully. I don't know that there will ever be a moment of self-reflection for the Judeo-fascists. Terrorizing Palestinians is actually a full-time job, okay? It takes up a lot of their mental <laughs> bandwidth. They don't have time for, like, human rights reports or international criminal courts. Keep all of those fancy words away from us, okay? We're over here terrorizing Isa Amro for documenting human rights abuses. We're over here declaring this man's house and youth center a military firing zone because what does the apartheid state love to fire at more than the youth and their future? There's also another UN vote that the occupation will for sure ignore. This came out on October 31st in the Jerusalem Post. Israel must get rid of its nuclear weapons, UNGA majority decides. Even though the occupation has never actually admitted that it possesses nuclear weapons, everybody knows it in the international community. And so the UNGA resolution aimed to disarm the occupation. Initial vote was 152 to 5. The five nations opposed on the risk of nuclear proliferation in the Middle East were Canada, the occupation, Micronesia, Palau, and the United States. Another 24 countries abstained, including European Union members. 
The resolution largely targets the occupation, which is believed to be one of the only nine nations to possess nuclear weapons. The resolution notes that the occupation is the only country in the Middle East and one of the few among the UN's 193 member states which has not signed the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons Treaty, the NPT. You know what I want to know is like, what is the deal with Micronesia? Because if you look at all of the votes coming out of the UN on any topic that has to do with condemning Israel for its violations of international law, there is always the US and Israel, which are voting against it, and they're accompanied by some island nation and often it's micronesia and every once in a while there'll be another one do they think that like they're strong allies no but do they think that like reasonable people are gonna assess the situation and be like guys let's just be like even-handed here you know let's just be both sides here okay (laughs) micronesia is on the side of israel and the u.s so let's just look at the facts like do they think that it's a talking point they're probably being coerced with force, with the threat of force, I yes, would imagine. Sure, sure. I agree with you. But what I'm saying is, why is it valuable to the U.S. and Israel? Like to add to Micronesia yeah, as so, a cosign? So are they, well, they just like, we've got Micronesia, so fuck all of you because all 200 of you countries are wrong because yeah. one other guy that we have a gun up to his head agrees with us. Well, you know the old saying. Right. As Micronesia goes, so goes the international community. (laughs) That's what they seem to think, right? Because that's how they're acting. Like if they just get Micronesia, then they can just make this whole apartheid thing go away. It is the cosign that literally everybody looks for. A international powerhouse of politics, Micronesia. Like the trifecta of influence, right? The US, Israel, yeah. and Micronesia. They're like, Wakanda signed on to this one. Wait, Wakanda is a is that's a fiction. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we own Marvel now, so whatever. That reminds me of uh the poll that, that they did. They're like, should we bomb Were they crowdsourcing foreign policy? There was a survey of US Republicans and they asked them are you in favor of bombing Agrabah? And 30% of them were. However, they were blissfully unaware that Agrabah is the fictional city featured in Disney's Aladdin. Yeah, bring them back to the Stone Age. Yeah, so this was like like a little moment in racist pop culture history in 2015 when everyone was like, see, Republicans are so racist, they'll bomb fake Arab-sounding cities, you know? Yeah, it's like a list of cities. And then they're like, is there an all of the above option? (laughs) Right. The successor. (laughs) It's actually so funny. I'm about to say the successor of Liz Truss. And it's just so funny because we only talked about her for one episode. Oh, poor Liz. She has a successor. Well, her successor has said that the UK has no plans to move the embassy of Israel to Jerusalem. He has totally shelved those plans. And for weeks, she was on this, you know, sort of parade of I'm going to move the embassy. And then she resigned after 12 minutes and then her plans got sacked. So it's just like, what is your legacy? Well, she managed to secure a heavy payday and I believe get some type of pension for the rest of her life, even though she only served for 
30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Infosys is a tech company founded by Sunak's father-in-law and is co-directed by Yuri Levine, a former agent of Israel's occupation military, specifically the intelligence unit 8200. Now, we've talked about these folks many a times on the podcast. It came up that there was a PR person or marketing person that was hired by the UK Labour Party, and they had been a member of Intelligence Unit 8200, a literal spy working for the UK government. Unit 8200 is also well known as the signals intelligence arm of the occupation forces that monitors Palestinians' daily life and uses sensitive information to blackmail them. Infosys announced that it has signed a memorandum of understanding with the state of Israel to enhance and to establish and enhance cooperation. This was from a press release in Bangalore, India, June 14th, 2012. It also appears that Infosys was a key investor in Cloud Endure, a com cloud computing company founded by former officers from Unit 8200. Before retiring, Sunak's father-in-law had been the company's chief mentor, chairman, CEO, and president. Quite the business card. Rishi Sunak's wife, Akshata Murthy, has roughly 700 million pounds worth of shares in Infosys. This information comes from Mint Press. So this week we're going to end with a story about yet another Palestinian child who has been imprisoned by the apartheid state. Shadi Khouri is just one of countless Palestinian children to be imprisoned by the Israeli army and be put in front of Israel's colonial court system with a conviction rate of 99.8%. Saudi courts looking at that number like, you could go a little higher. <laughs> On October 18th, occupation forces and civilian clothing raided Shadi Khouri's home in the Jerusalem neighborhood of Beit Hanina. Shadi was arrested and brutally dragged out of his home by four Israeli officers into an Israeli police car. The trail of blood from the beating stained his home's tile floor. When Shadi's parents attempted to intervene to protect their young son, they were pushed away and his father was tased, according to the family. Shadi is being held in the notorious Meskubia Detention Center, or Russian compound in Jerusalem, which is known by Palestinians as a quote-unquote slaughterhouse due to the harsh conditions to which they are subjected there, especially the notorious cell number four. Now, Mescubia, of course, is where the Bornath brothers continue to be held as of today even. They came in and raided his room around 5.30 a.m., Shadi's sister told Mondeweiss. They demanded to take his phone. He asked, where's your warrant for that? Zaina, who witnessed the arrest as she was holding her two-month-old newborn, recounted the officer's response, who said, we have a warrant for everything. Can you imagine just the absolute lack of due process? Where's your warrant? We have a warrant for everything because we decide. I, I decide. I just made it up that I have the warrant. So I just decide. I just gave myself a warrant. That's the state allows me to give myself a warrant in this moment. The warrant was just elected prime minister. Not even allowed to change out of his pajamas. He was beaten as he was taken from his home. He was denied access to a lawyer violating his basic rights as a child prisoner. I mean, again, child prisoner shouldn't even exist, much less we should even be talking about what rights they have because it shouldn't even exist. It's not even a concept that needs to even happen. What page in the democracy school book is child prisoner? 
I don't know. Ask Ned Price. Ned Price is like, well, what will be, will be. Ned Price is like, I have this job for like five more years before I become a lobbyist. Please follow up with me then. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of the Palestine Pod. You can check out our full episodes and sources at palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod and check us out on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. Folks, that has been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Genuinely, have a great day. 